Welcome to Living the Questions, a podcast of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Cheyenne. Thank you for joining us. Here on Living the Questions, we wrestle. We wrestle with life's dilemmas, we wrestle with current events, and we wrestle with what it means to live lives of integrity. We hope that you find some community, some comfort, and some hope in this time together. To learn more about our congregation, you can visit our website at uucheyenne.org. It's good to have you with us here on our podcast this week. Our question that we are wrestling with, and heaven knows it's going to be a real wrestle this week, is what does deep listening require of us? What does deep listening require of us? Like I said, this one is a real struggle. It's a real wrestling question. A question that really asks us to dig deep into our own hearts, to dig deeply into who we are as human beings and who we are together and how we are together. So if you're ready, I invite you to just dive right in. So to get started, we're going to talk about how this question, this question about what deep listening requires of us, how that's showing up in our news cycle this week. And some of you may have heard that there was a presidential debate on Tuesday night. Hmm. I will confess that I did not watch this presidential debate uh, live because I was watching a, a local voter forum uh, or a local candidate forum hosted by the League of Women Voters of Cheyenne, which was uh, perhaps a less spicy but far more informative way to spend my Tuesday evening consuming political television or zoom vision as the case was. And coming out of that debate, you know, some of the summary news coverage has been um, that no one is really certain what the purpose of the debate was, that the debate didn't really give undecided voters new information, the debate didn't really present um, policies or ideas in a clear way, that it sort of seemed Primarily, I think, to uh, some social media observers who posted uh, uh, photos of the two old man Muppets who like yell at each other in the uh, balcony of the theater. Yeah, that it was like that. And so I think it's safe to say that there was not any deep listening happening in Tuesday night's debate. And so Right, that's how the question is perhaps showing up in the news this week. So I want to kind of pivot us towards how can this question help us process this week's news? And as I think about Tuesday night's debate and what that means in terms of our commitment to deep listening, I think about this maybe reframing of the question in the context of politics, which is, what is required of me to show up to political conversations with my whole self? Right? What does it take 
for me to show up with all of my identities, all of who I am, all of my various policy positions? What does it take for me to show up to a political conversation with the entirety of who I am? And I think that some of that is groundedness. Some of that is having done my own internal work around the ways that my identities intersect, things like that. And so I, that's the, the base place for me, right? What is required of me to show up to the political conversation with my whole self? And so I feel like the next place that I want to invite us to consider is not just how am I showing up with my whole self to a political conversation, but how can I make it more possible for more people to show up to political conversations with their whole selves? What can I be doing to make political dialogue, whether it's happening in private spaces or public spaces, what is my responsibility to make these spaces of political dialogue spaces where people can bring their whole selves? And right here in Wyoming, we are having this whole whew, unfolding drama with our state central committee of the Republican Party who are um, engaging in what I feel like can only be referred to as purity tests in terms of party loyalty um, and doing things like censuring members of the state party for, uh, you know, doing work with the Cowgirl Run Fund, which is a nonpartisan organization that works to get more women into the legislature and more women elected in Wyoming. Right. And just I feel like that's a such a textbook example of a an approach to political conversations where people are not being invited to bring their whole selves. And that happens in lots of places. That happens in places that are liberal. That happens in places that are progressive. That happens in spaces that are really conservative. Um, right. So not to say that it's only the Republican Party here in Wyoming that is engaged in that. That's just, I think, a, probably the most public and prominent example in our community right now. It just keeps bringing me back to this question of what is my role to make it possible for more people to show up to political conversations with their whole selves? And that the work of deep listening, I think, is, is part of that. Because inviting people to show up to political conversations with their whole selves does not mean that we are encouraging what I would think of as anything goes spaces or anything goes conversations. Because I'm also clear that an anything goes conversation does not make it possible for everyone to show up with their whole selves. Right? And anything goes conversation makes it possible for the people who carry the most privilege, are the most comfortable, have the identities that are the most resonant with the dominant culture, that they will feel more empowered to bring their whole selves to those anything goes spaces. So if deep listening is not an anything goes situation, what is it? That's... I think, what we're wrestling with today.
To ground us in our Unitarian Universalist history, uh, as we dive deeper into this question of what deep listening requires of us, I want to invite us into a story from our history. And this is the story of um, desegregation at the First Unitarian Society of Chicago. And uh, this story has been told and retold in different places in different ways. But specifically, I want to read an excerpt from a retelling uh, by Jessica York in uh, Unitarian Universalist uh, children's curriculum called Toolbox of Faith. Along with some others, Reverend Pennington and James Luther Adams proposed a change to the church's bylaws to desegregate the church and welcome people whatever the color of their skin. They wanted to include, not exclude. They saw this as a way to put their love into action. When the congregation's board of directors considered the desegregation proposal, most of them supported it. However, one board member objected. Your new program is making desegregation into a creed, he said. You are asking everyone in our church to say they believe desegregating or inviting, even recruiting people of color to attend church here is a good way to tackle racism. What if some members don't believe this? And desegregation was a very controversial topic. In 1948, anything about skin color and racism was controversial. Some people, even some who supported African Americans in demanding their civil liberties, believed in a separate but equal policy, which kept people apart based on their skin color. Respectful debate ensued at the First Unitarian Society of Chicago. Both sides felt in their hearts that their belief was right. Perhaps they were so busy trying to be heard, they forgot to listen. And so they kept on talking. The debate went on in the board of directors meeting until the early hours of the morning. Everyone was exhausted and frustrated. Finally, James Luther Adams remembered that we should be listening twice as much as talking. He asked the person who had voiced the strongest objection, what do you say is the purpose of this church? Well, suddenly everyone was listening. Everyone wanted to hear the answer to this crucial question. Probably the person who objected was listening especially hard to his own heart, as well as to the words he had heard from other board members through the long discussion. The board member who opposed opening the church to people of color finally replied, Okay, Jim, the purpose of this church is to get hold of people like me and change them. The First Unitarian Society of Chicago successfully desegregated. And that's such a powerful retelling by Jessica York of this, right? What is essentially a long board meeting. Um, but it was an important long board meeting. And... Uh, for me, this is an example from our history of how deep listening created the space for change, for transformation, for a new possibility to open up and to unfold, right? Like that uh, board member who had voiced opposition to desegregating said, for uh, the congregation, for the community to get hold of folks who were opposed to expanding their sense of who they were and change them, change their hearts, change their mind, change their spirits. And so I see in this story both an example of the power of deep listening 
and also the limitations of listening that is presented as an activity that um, just means that we need to hear everybody's opinion and that somehow conflict resolution will come out of just hearing other people's opinions. Because the flip side of this story is that this was a moment where a board, presumably, I do not have the exact facts on this, but I, I feel like I can make a strong guess that that board was composed of white men. And if it wasn't exclusively composed of white men, it was probably very heavily dominated by them. And so this was an instance of a group of people with power and privilege debating the merits of including other people in their ministry, in their work, in their community. So in one sense, they were deeply listening to one another. But I wonder how deeply the folk in that room were listening to the real lived testimony of their black and brown neighbors. How deeply they were engaging with the real spiritual imperative from the folks with whom they were looking to create this integrated religious community. And that's not to say that they were ignoring them, but that that space of real deep listening and transformation was happening in a room with other people who shared these dominant identities with them. And so I think it's both this beautiful story that's an invitation to see what is possible and a reminder about the limitations of deep listening as something that only happens in spaces with people who look like us or share some certain identity of ours. As I've considered the question, what does deep listening require of us? I've thought about it in two ways. What does deep listening require of me as an individual, as a person? What does the act of listening deeply take from within myself? What does it require? And the companion question What does deep listening require of us? What does deep listening require of the collective, of how we are together in community, in relationship, in in our lives and in our world? So there's these two questions or these two dimensions, perhaps, of deep listening, the ways that we approach it as individuals and the ways that we create space where deep listening can happen as communities. And in both of those dimensions of deep listening, the piece to which I continue to return is that deep listening requires a commitment to the possibility of transformation. And as an individual, it means that if I approach a conversation without knowing in my heart that I might come away from that conversation changed, that I'm not 
prepared to engage in deep listening. And that doesn't mean that it's inherently bad to show up to a conversation with a very clear sense that my purpose in that conversation is not transformation. Right? So that's not inherently bad, but it's not deep listening. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we conflate them. So there's this one piece about the individual where it means that I am showing up knowing in my own heart that I might be transformed by the experience of listening and the experience of being in dialogue with another person. And in the community dimension, I think about what it takes to build communities where there is the expectation of transformation over time. Where there is the expectation that we are unfinished beings, that we are unfinished works of art. And works of art, indeed, as we are, but unfinished and in need of what um, our story from earlier about James Luther Adams Right, in need of a community whose purpose is to get hold of us and change our hearts, change our minds, change our spirits. And as I was thinking about these questions about what it requires to show up as an individual person whose heart is open to change, to being changed, to transforming, and to be part of a community where it is the expectation that we will have our spirits changed by the work of being in relationship with other people, I started to look into history, into into our human history for examples of that kind of transformation, that kind of change. And as I was thinking and looking, I realized there are not a lot of examples of shared common narratives where we talk really clearly about the ways that public figures, whether they be politicians or artists or philosophers, undergoing this kind of change of heart and mind. But one that did come to mind is the life and the scholarly work and the um, scholar and the writings of W.E.B. Du Bois. And specifically, I have been reading the book Stamped from the Beginning by Dr. Ibram Kendi. And in the book, Kendi really traces this arc through W.E.B. Du Bois's life from an approach to advocating for Black folks that comes from a place of assimilation, the idea that the way for Black folks to gain equality is for them to present the ways that they are most like white people and to lean into the ways that we can all be the same, to lean into aspirations of being white. Right? So, Kendi traces this arc in Du Bois's life from that approach to racial equity work to one that is explicitly anti-racist, one that explicitly um, advocates for 
um, and argues that black people are in no way inferior. They do not need to become more white um, or more like anyone else in order to be granted equal rights. So we see this transformation over the life of W.E.B. Du Bois from this assimilationist approach to this anti-racist approach. And that the kind of spirit work and heart work and mind work that goes into that was, was in part right, engaging in some, some deep listening, deep listening to, especially and specifically to the lives and narratives and positions of Black folks whose experiences were not the same as W.E.B. Du Bois's. That, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois grew up as sort of the, um, the exemplary Black kid in his hometown in New England. And so his, right, like his early self-image was really shaped by the white folks around him and what they told him about what it meant for him to be a Black boy and then man in the United States. And so this movement of heart, mind, and spirit that Du Bois underwent required deeply listening to people who were critiquing his work, who were saying, I think you have it wrong. Um, and that that kind of movement, that kind of shift in position and approach is a complex to talk about when we look back at historical figures and their lives and their legacies. And so we don't often talk about those, those arcs of movement, those arcs of change, of transformation in people's thinking. And we love to, to flatten historical figures and either um, attribute their shifts and changes to sort of lightning strike moments um, or neglect that they have happened at all. I think about the, um, the shifts and changes that happened in the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s thinking and approach to anti-racism work in the United States and that I don't know about you all, but I feel like I certainly learned a lot about what I would term the I have a dream king in my education and right, lots of I have a dream king from elementary school on up but that I learned very little about who King was towards the end of his life. I did not learn a lot about the King who was talking about the triple evils of poverty, racism, and militarism. But that 
that is who who King had become and was becoming when he was assassinated. But because we struggle with what it means to reflect the complexity of people whose lives changed over time, in part because of their capacity for deep listening, their capacity to be transformed, to be open to the movements of the spirit of the universe, however you want to term it. Um, And so we tend to flatten them. And I wonder, as I've been thinking about the the sort of intellectual life and political life of W.E.B. Du Bois, right, it made me wonder how would we approach King's legacy if King had been allowed to live um, into his elderly years? You know, W.E.B. Du Bois lived into his 90s. Um, and so would we be more able and willing to credit and understand and talk about that kind of transformation in a public figure like King if he had been allowed to live longer and engage in more of that transformation. So the practice of deep listening requires that we as individuals are open to our own minds and spirits and hearts and lives being changed and transformed. And it requires that we create communities, that we create relationships, that we create structures that encourage and assume that part of being together in community is being changed, is being transformed. And I think that's, for me, what is so both indicative of the current moment and just plain sad about the debate that we saw on Tuesday night is the ways that that uh, dog and pony show assumes that there is no change or transformation possible, assumes that we are talking past one another to our bases, that we are seeking only to rally the folk who think like us in those moments. And I understand that Right in politics, there's always a need to rally the base. There's a need to activate the folks who, you know, are the most engaged in a particular issue. But I am really, really struck by our collective unwillingness to be changed and transformed. And I think that one of the things that makes me so committed to religious community is that we are a place where change and transformation in relationship with others is an expectation of who we are, right? Change and transformation in relationship with the divine through other people. And specifically in Unitarian Universalist community, that our change does not come through, you know, divine intervention, sort of the, you know, the hand of God comes down and spins your brain and turns your mind but that the holy shows up in other people. The holy shows up in people who 
restore your faith in humanity as soon as you meet them, and the holy shows up in people who you find unbelievably difficult. Right? The holy shows up in people who annoy you, who make you um, wish that you had stayed home instead of coming to church. Right? The holy shows up in all kinds of people and invites us to the work of transformation in relationship. The Reverend Nancy McDonald Ladd um, references relationship as the sandpaper that makes our the, the change and the transformation of community possible. And I love that image. And so maybe the question that I have is how can we engage in deep listening that is sandpaper? Which might sound sort of counter to this idea of deep listening is something that happens when we're all in our like most centered, most like spiritually grounded place. Because sandpaper is an irritant. Right? It's designed to irritate. It's designed to um, to change. If we if we mean it about deep listening, right? If we mean it about being in dialogue, community, relationship with people who do not share our approach to anything. And I think that this, we so often frame it as, you know, can liberals and conservatives talk to each other? But this, this moves along multiple axes of difference. Um, and that I think I know, as well as many of you who are engaged in liberal or progressive religious communities know, that we have differences of opinion and of um, thought within our own communities that are very real. I think that we have work to do in terms of creating space for deep listening that is not sort of this like, oh yes, like let's all just quiet down and we will miraculously in this sort of very like soft space find a way forward. No, deep listening is like sandpaper. Deep listening is not simple or easy. Deep listening requires change, right? It requires a willingness to be changed and then it requires that you actually change. We're, we're called to this sandpaper kind of community. And that that's hard because there is so much abrasion in this world around us. There is so much that is so, 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 so abrasive about this moment and about many moments in history. So it, I, it's a hard ask. And I know this for my, right, it's a hard ask of myself, and it's a hard ask of folks with whom I am in community, both in the congregation and, and in the wider world, but it's a hard ask to say, yeah, like, let's go experience some abrasion together. But that, for me, the alternative where we just keep moving or talking or writing past each other so that we don't come into contact, so that we don't experience that friction, that abrasion of relationship 
that has the, the possibility to change us. That alternative for me is harder than, than the abrasion of being together. And sometimes we need to, right? Sometimes we need to preserve ourselves. We need to step back. We need to heal. We need to tend to our own spirits and our own bodies and our own minds. Um, and part of being in community together is being willing to listen, is being willing to show up, is being willing to, you know, as St. Francis of Assisi is credited in his peace prayer, right, to seek to understand more than to be understood. And that doing that in a way that is accountable to our highest values, that is accountable to a movement towards equity and justice in our world, is hard. It's a complicated task. But like I said, the alternative, the alternative where we are so unwilling to be changed that we avoid relationship because it will change us, that's a world of which I am truly afraid. So I invite us to listen deeply, to know steadfastly who we are as human beings, and to, in that knowledge of ourselves, know that we might be changed, and to see that for the miracle that it is. May it be so. Thank you for listening. Your presence matters to us. Whether you are here in Cheyenne or across the globe, we are grateful that you would spend this time with us. If you'd like to connect more with our community, you can visit our website at uucheyenne.org. I'm the Reverend Hannah Roberts Vilnave, and on behalf of a grateful community, thank you. We'll see you soon.